Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 7th of May, 2023. Stephen Kurt speaking on Learning from the Early Church, the Anointed King. Well, it is not the first time that a coronation has been celebrated at Christ Church, New Malden. The first time that a coronation was celebrated in this church was in the summer of 1902. And it wasn't without a major mishap. Something national which occurred that had big implications locally and uh, basically made any problems surrounding the current coronation actually seem quite minor. So what happened? Well, Queen Victoria's long reign had come to an end and her eldest son, Bertie, who, like Prince Charles, had to wait ages for his chance to reign, was about to be crowned as King Edward VII, and it was all scheduled to take place in June 1902. But with the coronation just two days away, and celebrations planned up and down the country, including here in New Malden, the event suddenly had to be postponed. Why? Because the king suffered from an appendicitis requiring an emergency operation. And it was really serious and the new king could easily have died. But in the end, King Edward recovered, and the coronation and its celebrations eventually went ahead in August instead. But the fear and the concern created by this event is shown by a poem that one of my predecessors, the second vicar of Christchurch, William Allen Chalacombe, wrote in the light of these events, and he published in the church magazine in uh, August 1902 about what had happened. And it reflects the concern of the nation and people in New Morden about the well-being of their king. And here is this poem written by the second vicar of Christchurch. I'm going to read it out to you. Our sun was mounting up. The sky gave promise of a glorious day. The nation decked herself in trappings gay to crown her king and hastened on her way to fill her cup. The nation's heart stood still. The laughing land became a mocking tomb in which high hopes were buried in the gloom. The bud that promised well was not to bloom. The king was ill. Loyal love did not despair. From brilliant streets she turned to holy fame where earnest hearts plead and plead not in vain. And on her knees the nation eased her pain in plaintive prayer. And God is looking down with loving heart upon a humbled land as round the royal couch in prayer we stand and wait with fervent prayer the king's command, our king to crown. Tells us quite a lot, doesn't it? about the atmosphere of the time. I came across it in the local history uh, part of the council offices when I was doing a bit of research a few years ago. I stumbled across it in a church magazine of 1902. And it shows quite a lot about the atmosphere in New Malden around this particular coronation, uh, an event that's largely forgotten now. But there's been three coronations since, of George V in 1910, George VI in 1937, and the late Queen Elizabeth II in 1953, and they were all celebrated here at Christchurch. And it's because through most of this church's history, loyalty to the king or queen 
has been seen as a really important part of the Christian faith. But is that the case? Are the two things tied totally together? Is republicanism, for instance, an option for a committed Christian? And what does the Bible say about it all? Well, the truth is that the Bible has been used both in support of the monarchy and it's been used against it. The only time in our history when we had a spell as a republic was after the first king of this country called Charles in the 17th century. There he is, Charles I. Charles I was the one who ended up having his head chopped off by Parliament. And when that happened and a republic was declared, a lot of biblical arguments were used in support of this. Look in 1 Samuel in the Bible, it was said, and you'll see that the people of Israel were never meant to have a king. And it was a sign of their disobedience to God when they asked for one. Here is the relevant passage. It's where the people of Israel come to Samuel and they ask him to appoint them a king and Samuel's displeased with them and he goes to God and, uh, well, God basically tells him to do what the people wish and to give them a king, but God also tells Samuel to warn the people of what this will lead to. And the oppression and the disobedience to God of most of the kings that followed well, in the 17th century, it was used as a very strong argument for republicanism to show what a bad idea monarchy was, and, of course, for republicans, still is. But at the same time that that debate was taking place, the Bible was used just as much by people on the other side of the argument, too. So these people said, look, before Israel had kings, there was anarchy, in Israel. It's shown by verses like this at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Kings in the Old Testament, monarchists said, were anointed with holy oil, precisely to show that they were appointed by God himself. So we see King Saul being anointed by the prophet Samuel. Then we see King David, again, being anointed by the prophet Samuel. And then we see King Solomon, David's son, anointed as well. In this case, he was anointed by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet. And if those names sound familiar, it will be because you'll have heard the music by Handel that was played yesterday, which is the foundation of that event hidden behind a veil in 1953 when uh, the queen was anointed and, of course, behind that screen yesterday. That's the basis of it. That's why that particular music from uh, Handel, music Handel wrote for the coronation of George II, is played at that point. It's the part where the monarch of this country is anointed. Why? To show that God himself is investing them with this role of leading his people. Now, those two positions, the Republican one or the sort of anti, certainly an absolute monarch, and the monarchist position. They more or less became reconciled when the English Republic, which only lasted for 11 years, didn't work out. And a constitutional monarchy was established in this country over another Charles, Charles II. Now, it took a little while to work out what precisely that meant. But what it basically meant, and what it still means today, is that the king or the queen is appointed to rule by God, 
but under rather than above the laws of the country, established in our country certainly by its people through Parliament. Other countries, of course, have a very different political setup, but that's a bit of a snapshot of the rationale for the monarchy here in Britain and the way in which it's developed. And the truth is that the Bible is actually less concerned with the human process by which people come to power than the truth that all power is given by God. And all power is exercised under his authority. That's the message that we see throughout the Bible, particularly uh, in Old Testament stories where we see kings like the Pharaoh in the story of Moses and King Darius in the story of Daniel being confronted by God's prophets. We also see the kings of Israel having to learn that the authority that they held was held under the authority of God himself. And the ultimate demonstration of authority in the Bible is what we're still celebrating in this season of Easter. Easter is meant to be a 50-day celebration of, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was executed, he was executed under the authority of the Roman emperor, the emperor Tiberius, the super king of the Roman Empire through his representative Pontius Pilate. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? When God raised Jesus from the dead, God declared that he alone is sovereign over the world through his anointed king, Jesus Christ. And that's why the risen Jesus says to his disciples and to all of us at the end of Matthew's gospel, these words, all authority, not just some authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, Jesus says, to me. And the rest of the New Testament is basically all about how followers of Jesus work out what that means. What does it mean that Jesus has all authority? The rest of the Bible, as I say, the rest of the New Testament is basically working out in lots of practical ways what that means in practice. And just one important part of that, it is just part of it, but it's an important part of it, is how we relate to those people who retain authority in this world under the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. And that's where passages like that one that we had read to us earlier by Kate from Romans 13 come in. That passage that tells us to submit to the governing authorities, why? Because they're established by God. But the crucial part of that passage is where it declares that the one placed in such authority is a servant of God. In other words, his or her authority is strictly derived, it's strictly delegated from the authority that God himself possesses in Jesus Christ over the whole of this world. Monarchical authority and any other authority in this world is to be taken seriously, this passage is saying, and proper submission is to be made of it, made to it, precisely because it is an authority delegated 
by the God who wants there to be order in this world rather than chaos. And that's why what happened yesterday in Westminster Abbey is important. Particularly at that point, too sacred for it to be televised or even witnessed really certainly by many people, where King Charles was anointed with holy oil. To demonstrate that just like his mother and every other British monarch before, he was being given this awesome responsibility by God to care for his people. Queen Elizabeth II was, as many of us know, a really devout Christian. And when her Christian faith really developed isn't really that clear. It may have been something that just steadily, steadily developed through her life and when she was a child and just gradually progressed. Some people believe it was the visit of the American evangelist Billy Graham to Britain early in her reign in 1954 that made a particular difference to her. But alongside those things that we don't really know that much about, it does seem that the point where she was anointed at her coronation in 1953, and certainly she spoke about this very powerfully, it does seem that that was a really crucial moment in bringing home to Elizabeth II the reality of God and the responsibility that that God had given her to exercise a delegated part of his rule over the world. It's said that the late Queen Elizabeth once expressed the hope that Jesus would return before she died. And when she was asked to explain why she said that, she said it was because she wanted the experience of being able to cast her crown down before him alongside the other rulers of the world. Now that didn't happen. She did die before Jesus returned. But the fact that Queen Elizabeth looked forward to that moment really shows everything about her attitude to the authority and the anointing that she had received. So how do we respond to the coronation of King Charles III yesterday? Well, in the first place, in the light of what I said, I think it's got to be by re-acknowledging that point. And it was actually made, if we were attentive to it, throughout the service yesterday, if you were watching it, that all authority in this world comes from God through his anointed son, Jesus Christ. That was emphasised actually throughout the service yesterday. The word Christ is one we can get so used to that we don't particularly reflect on what it means. But the word Christ, as those of you particularly doing the Paul course know, the word Christ means Messiah, and it literally means anointed one. And any time that we think about authority, it's important for us to remember, if we're Christians, that Jesus and no one else is Lord of the world. It's not just important that we remember that, it's important that we remember the nature of this authority and the way in which it's exercised. The way in which Jesus is Lord of the world is not through domination, but through loving, sacrificial service. I wonder whether you noticed yesterday that the very first part of the service, after that young boy said those words uh, to the king at the start of the service, 
Soon after that came the first quote used in that service from the Bible, right near the start of the service, and it came from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And it quoted words of Jesus, where Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I just quoted part of those words, but from that saying of Jesus. Christians can have different views on many aspects of politics, and I think it's really important that we do. Christians aren't meant to be monolithic. I think we are meant to debate these issues and uh, argue for different points of importance, and that includes the monarchy. But the one thing that all Christians are meant to be united on and live by is the truth that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given by God to his anointed son, Jesus Christ. How we work out what that means below that is secondary to our agreement about that principle. But having acknowledged that, a second important thing that I believe we need to do in the light of the coronation is to pray for and support our anointed King Charles. All human beings, without exception, are flawed. Of course they are. Every monarchy, every republic, every political setup is flawed one way or another. All human beings are flawed as well. Every king or queen that's ever existed, every president or prime minister. But God nonetheless calls people, representing both of these aspects of life, flawed institutions, flawed people, God calls people to hold responsibility beneath him according to that model of sacrificial and self-giving service that he perfectly revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. It's very easy, the easiest thing in the world really, to rubbish leaders and to pick holes in them. We can do that very easily with any leader that we choose to do that to. The much harder thing is to pray for them. The much harder thing is to support them in being or becoming the leaders that God wants them to be. King Charles has had, in many ways, a very privileged life. But in other ways, he's had a very lonely life, a very difficult, disappointing, and troubled life. And part of our task is to pray that God will redeem those experiences. That's the amazing thing about the God of Christianity. He is a God who takes sometimes the most tragic experiences and redeems them by bringing good out of them somehow. And we've got to pray that God will use that, plus the king's gifts and insights, his strengths and virtues. We've got to pray that God will use all of that for the good of the people of this country, the Commonwealth, and indeed other nations as well. That's a responsibility that I believe we have. But finally, responding to the coronation and this whole subject of authority is a chance for every single one of us as well to reflect on our own responsibilities to the authority that we have been given by God. Because every single one of us here has actually been given delegated authority by God. That's what God does. He delegates his authority 
to human beings, people like you and me. Many of you here, for instance, hold the God-given authority in your lives to be parents or to be grandparents. That is one of the most important God-given delegated authorities that exists. But of course, there are other spheres of life as well. If you have any authority in the workplace over anyone at all, any responsibility for anyone, that is a God-given delegated authority to be taken with the utmost seriousness. But of course, there are other more informal, unofficial positions of authority that we often hold in our lives as well. If we're a baptised follower of Jesus, which I think probably goes for virtually all of us, if not all of us here today, then we've also been anointed. The New Testament makes it clear that anointing is part of what happened when we were baptised. That's why it's sometimes called being christened. And when we're baptised, we're being given the authority and the responsibility to act on behalf of God in our daily lives. And once again, the model for that authority is not to be in any way domineering, but that model of sacrificial, servant-hearted service that God revealed so perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ. So that is a third but important aspect of reflecting on what happened yesterday. Coronation Sunday is a chance for us to celebrate together, and that's great. That's what we'll be doing later on where we share food together. And I was saying to Tim just a few moments ago, do you reinforce the fact that even if you haven't bought any food long, that doesn't matter, there is always enough food to go round. I said in an email to the congregation yesterday, the feeding of the 5,000 was the last time, recorded time, that a Christian event undercated. Even that was put right pretty quickly, wasn't it? So do stick around, because it's important to celebrate together. And uh, people here have bought food from various regions, which is just totally and utterly fantastic. But it is also a time, as well as celebrating, to think seriously about authority. To take a mature response to authority. The Republicans, they make some really good points that we need to listen to. The monarchists make really good points that we need to listen to. We need to have debate about all of these issues and put them together and say, what is the very best thing that's being advocated by the different sides? What's the thing that they're most concerned to preserve and safeguard? And we've got to take that seriously. That's an important part of being a mature democracy, listening to one another and always seeking to uh, develop and amend our political systems to make sure they're working as effectively as possible. But it's an important time to think seriously about authority and who it ultimately belongs to, who it's delegated to, and what our role is in this, so that we ourselves can be really faithful followers of the ultimate anointed king. It's always a time for us to reconsider our commitment to being a follower of the ultimate anointed king, the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.